Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All the Things podcast, episode number 41, Bootstrap, Materialize, and Tailwind CSS. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. Real brief little announcement here. We finally, finally have a Discord up and running. So right now it has a bunch of different channels in there for you to get help with different uh, coding languages. So, you know, you guys can join in. It's a little community thing. You guys can join in and chat and ask questions about Vue.js, CSS, whatever. There's also applicable voice channels as well. So you can either text in those text channels or actually have a chat if you're like, oh, you know, let's take this into the, one of the voice channels and try to figure this out. You guys are welcome to do that. There's general chat channels, there's off-topic chat channels, and then there's a bunch of announcement-like channels, and they're all uh, in there as well. They're all in their own little categories and stuff like that, and they will automatically pull in most of our social feeds, so you can, you know, get get all the social feeds there rather than checking the app if that's what you're into. So, yeah, definitely join our community. Uh, it's going to be for developers from all walks of life, all parts of the industry, whether you're like the weekend warrior just messing around or whether you're a guy who builds websites every single day and have, you know, and has for 10 plus years, it doesn't matter. Come join us and uh, let's get the uh, let's get the chatting going. With that aside, I'm just going to quickly go over the episode here and then we'll just jump right in. So as always, we have our weekly pain points followed by segment number 1. In this case, it's going to be a brief overview of those CSS frameworks that I just mentioned. Then we're going to have segment number 2, which is choosing different frameworks and then web news which is the third segment this week, and that is going to be covering Google I.O. as well as Microsoft Build 2019. Both events happened extremely recently, so they're fresh in our minds and have some very interesting and exciting announcements that came out of those events, so we will be talking about those. So without any further ado, Mike, take it away with your weekly pain points. Yeah, so weekly pain point this week for me was building some pretty big features out in uh, Vue.js. Had to really rack my brain, uh, do some paper coding for a little bit, do some pseudo coding, uh, and had had like a deadline as well, but which was early this week. So it was it was kind of a stressful weekend, but got it all done. Learned a lot more about Vue.js and definitely will be implementing that knowledge into some articles for you guys in the future. Um, the other thing just real quick that I did was I wrote a article on Medium. Uh, it's about my conflict with Apple laptops and MacBooks in general. So you can j- check that out on our Medium at HTML, all the things on Medium. So that's about it though. What about you, Matt? So this week, uh, my new laptop arrived, and it's uh, a new Lenovo laptop. And we've had a we had a bit of a tumultuous time, so this is a little bit not super long winded, but because I'll just give you the gist of it. But basically, when I first got it, um, it has a bunch of RGB, you know, the different LED colors. If you don't know what RGB is, and it has it on the vents, and it has it on the uh, the power button, and it has it on the logo, and it has it on the keyboard, of course, for the backlight. And so I wanted to try to change the colors, and it ended up turning into this whole thing where there was some out-of-date drivers, some software was, I was told to install some software, that software is out of date, and this other, and then uh, some of the other software that I was supposed to use didn't have the option in there, but it wasn't, it, but it automatically hides things it doesn't detect, so then I had to download this Corsair software, which then kept making the keyboard turn off, but it would control the colors, and so like, this is all just for colors, which is a bit of a mess, so after troubleshooting, I think it was the first night we, uh, that I had it, for like the whole night, didn't even get to try it out or do the performance or anything like that. I eventually, uh, a day or two later, I think 
figured out how to get all the drivers and everything all together and working. And then I was then uh, I was using it like normal, and I was noticing that the right click was acting a little bit strange, uh, but wasn't anything like super alarming. So then I used it uh, with third party or not third. I guess it'd be third party, third party accessories like an external keyboard and mouse for a day because I was out using that. And then I came back home today and I was using it to write up some stuff for medium and that type of thing. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, explicitly, essentially, I'm going to explicitly test this right click. And I found that while I was writing, while I was typing that I kept missing spaces and I was like, oh, well, great. So I started like testing the the space bar with different varying amounts of pressure. And what I found is, is on the left side of the space bar, you can apply any sort of pressure, push it down and it'll click. But if you apply a light amount of pressure on the far right hand side, it does not work. And I kind of type at a 45 degree angle. It's like my hands are kind of come in to the keyboard at a 45 degree angle. So my right thumb, I favor my right thumb for hitting the space bar. And my right thumb also sits in the top right corner of the space bar. And when I'm typing quickly, I don't exactly like apply a decent amount of pressure. So what we found out just now was that there's only one or what we assume is only one button underneath the space bar or not like two, not like one on the left, one on the right. It's one in the center. And we think that just due to manufacturer tolerance, it's like clicking, not quite clicking enough. Because if you apply, you know, not an unreasonable amount, but like if you apply more pressure on the right hand side where I'm clicking, it does click every time. So we're thinking it's just that. So basically what the challenge is this week is I'm going to be continuing to type on this thing to determine whether I want to keep it because the performance is great. It looks good. Everything's fine. That driver thing with the RGB is fixed. It's just a matter of getting this keyboard uh, finally kind of ironed out. And we assume it's the same with the left and right click as well. That's why the right click was acting a little bit janky. So we'll see what happens. I got to try to tailor myself to click harder with my rightmost thumb. Uh, which sounds really easy, but obviously I've been typing for years with the same amount of pressure, so it's going to be a bit of a fight against the muscle memory. But that aside, laptop is really good. Uh, I really do enjoy it so far, other than the problems. Really good performance, and hopefully I get used to it so that we don't have to send it back or try to get another one or whatever we're going to do with it at that point. But anyway, uh, let's jump into the episode today. So jump right in here to segment number one, which is a brief overview. So... CSS frameworks make the UI developer's job easier. So you can kind of think of them as a ready-made CSS style sheet where all you do is format your HTML with the proper structure and then add in the classes from that style sheet and then the UI is basically done at that point. And oftentimes the classes uh, that come with these frameworks are compatible with a certain set of browsers including all of the necessary properties and configurations saving the developer from having to remember all of the different setups uh, for different browsers. So as you know, there's all the vendor, you know, prefixes, and then there's different ways to configure certain UI elements in certain browsers. A lot of the time that's kind of mitigated by using a CSS framework because they'll, if you say, you know, I don't know, align left or something like that, they know on all the browsers how to get that thing to align to the left. Um, Also, in addition, these frameworks have their specific purposes uh, beyond simply spinning up a UI. So sometimes they'll have uh, specific UI styles, which we'll get into in a little bit. And sometimes there's also the ability to theme them. So you can actually start downloading things like a bootstrap theme is very common. And there's a few other little things as well that they can do uh, as well, depending on which one you select. But it's important to note that these frameworks are oftentimes not limited to just CSS. And a lot of their functionality does actually come from JavaScript, 
some maybe some HTML components thrown in there as well, etc. So my very base example where I was saying that it was just a CSS style sheet, that's a really, really base example, just so you kind of understand if you're completely new to CSS frameworks. That's a very, very base example. A lot of these frameworks are oftentimes expanded on by you know js and all that type of stuff to give you more functionality in forms or whatever it is that they're aiming for you to do so i know that this is a lot of rapid fire information about frameworks being stated here so if you're finding yourself kind of lost at this point i have written uh kind of a companion article to this episode it's entitled uh, css frameworks or uh, what is a css framework and that is on medium and there's going to be a link uh, to that in the show notes here so you can actually just click on that and actually read through and i kind of go over these three css frameworks so bootstrap materialize and uh, tailwind css as well as go over these little little tidbits i guess you'd call it of information that i just said explaining you know what is the css framework how does it you know how does it generally work that type of thing in a little bit more detail so a bit of a written guide there for you if you are into that so I guess we'll move on from that really brief overview because, like I said, it is a very brief overview because let's get into the meat of this episode, which is these three particular uh, CSS frameworks. So segment number two, choosing different frameworks. So as I mentioned before, there are different functions for different frameworks. So you should shop around a bit before you actually just choose one for your project and make sure that the one that you choose can solve all the problems that you want it to solve for your particular project. So the reason why we mentioned this in particular is because when Mike and I were first starting out, when we were looking at CSS frameworks, we were just kind of under the assumption of, oh, you know, we just choose one that's modern and updated and we'll just get all the functionality that we could ever want, which is true. You know, you can get a lot of the functionality, you can get a lot of the customization, you can get a lot of it, but sometimes things start out closer to what your production looks like, if that makes sense. So basically what it would mean, and I'll reiterate this later, but like, for example, you certainly could do, you know, let's say a, a UI in Google in Google's material design. If you want, if that's the style you're going for, materialize is the one you're going to want to go with. Bootstrap could absolutely be customized so that it's closer to Google's material design. But at the same time, why would you use Bootstrap when you're, when materialize is so close? So that would be something that where you, when you're shopping around, you'd be like, oh, let's use materialize, for example. So as I said before, the three main things that I want to jump into, and we'll jump into these into detail now, is Bootstrap, Materialize, and Tailwind CSS, starting with Bootstrap. So Bootstrap is an extremely popular CSS framework uh, that can be used to very quickly spin up a UI. And it comes equipped with uh, pre-made assets, all within the same sort of what I'll call a modern-looking style. And it also has like a modern-looking sort of uh, color scheme to match it. And the advantages of this sort of framework is that getting getting a page up and running is very fast. However, if you're looking for a particular or maybe even a very custom style, then you're going to have to do a fair bit of customization work to Bootstrap. Now, luckily, this customization is anticipated as Bootstrap is meant to be customized. And then you can kind of package it up alongside. You can kind of like package it, package it up in sort of like your own little theme if you want. And that's that's kind of where the, the spawning grounds of Bootstrap themes are. So people will come up with their own, you know, color schemes and different UI uh, ideas and different design systems, even if it's gone that far. And then they can spin up, you know, a Bootstrap theme and then they'll sell you that. Like some developers will sell it. Some of them will just make, use it internally, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of where that customization comes in. However, this customization uh, does take, obviously, additional time. And on top of that, it does take additional skill. So for the most part, the customizations are all done using SAS, so S-A-S-S. So you'll need to know how to use and configure SAS to get customizing 
Otherwise, you're going to have to spend time learning that and setting it up if you don't have it installed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So another thing with Bootstrap that I found, at least, is that it also requires a lot of div encapsulation, uh, which means it essentially requires you to put a lot of divs within divs within divs within divs to uh, take it full advantage of all of its components that it creates for you. So like columns and rows within the columns and containers within those rows. Um, it's great. It, like it, it's great for quickly getting a UI up and running. Uh, if you're just looking to test a UI structure or something like that, if you just want to throw throw a you know dev art up there and show your show your client. But when you're going in and customizing and really have like more complicated design work, I find this div encapsulation stuff really slows you down and really makes for janky janky looking html that's just my opinion uh, a lot of people are okay with div encapsulation obviously and use it all the time and that's fine i try to kind of minimize as much as i can what's encapsulating and within what and another thing to kind of build off of that too is that is that with bootstrap like bootstrap is a little bit older and so it's kind of more like div encapsulation was very much a in my opinion it was very much like a and it's still happening but it, it's very much like a like a phase of the industry. Like as CSS and everything and, and HTML and all that stuff started becoming more popular and more powerful, like web apps started coming out and stuff like that. Like websites in general is what I mean, started becoming more powerful. I would say that like Bootstrap was kind of caught up in that wave. So you're going to see a little bit more of that encapsulation type of thing because it's still kind of, I would call it div encapsulation. I would call it maybe stuck in the past, but everybody still uses it. You know, if, if, if that kind of makes sense. So it's like Bootstrap kind of saw the rise of web apps and the rise of those of those uh, more powerful websites that we use today. And so there's going to be a little bit of that like older stuff in there. But on Bootstrap's, uh, on the plus side of Bootstrap, I should say, it's more of a, it's more of like a matured thing. It, and, and there's a lot more help online. Like it's more of a matured framework. It, it, it's, there's a lot of help online. There's a lot of guides. There's a lot of documentation. So, you know, you get the good with the bad. Something like Tailwind CSS, which we'll talk about in a bit, is still, you know, pre-version 1.0, for example. So, sure, it's, you know, fresh, clean, new, and doesn't have, like, any bulk to it, let's say, other than the stuff that's like, really needed. But as Tailwind CSS will age, generally speaking, as with everything, it'll kind of get a little bit of that bloat. Sort of like how Bootstrap has over the years. But Bootstrap's still very good. And another just real brief aside, you can decide what you want out of bootstrap as well if you for whatever reason just wanted to use bootstrap just for the nav bar uh or if you wanted it to just use you just use it for a very particular piece there's like there's ways you don't have to look at the documentation just because off the top i can't remember all the pieces but you can very particularly say like import you know these styles from bootstrap import this piece import this piece but like leave these other pieces and you know i know i'm not going to use those pieces i have my own custom css for those or whatever so you can you know kind of fight that bloat if you will by quickly and easily importing you know just the pieces you need and then writing your own css uh, or, or however your project is is handling that so if we move on from bootstrap and we go into materialize now so materialize is extremely or at least in my opinion not i shouldn't say extremely similar but it, it reminds me of bootstrap a lot so it, it, it's catered to those that are looking for google's material design but and since material design is more of a design system or more of a design language, depending on which terminology you prefer, you can get a great deal of different looking UIs from using it. So just because everything's material design doesn't mean everything's going to look the same. 
and this is very similar this is very similar to bootstrap where bootstrap has a very you know particular design language if you will but you can get a heck of a lot of different different looking uis even without really changing bootstrap very much so if you're looking for something different than this style so looking for something different than google material google's material design then it's probably best that you look elsewhere and this is this goes back to that point where i said if you shop around and you're looking for material design you know maybe materialize is the one for you instead of you downloading bootstrap and having to having to you know customize a bunch of things or download tailwind and have to construct a bunch of things you don't really have that problem here this thing is made for websites that are in google material design so this is the one you should probably go with and Again, just like Bootstrap as well, that's why it's similar to Bootstrap, it can be themed as well, so there are uh, materialized themes, and those those customizations are also generally done in SAS. So, same drawbacks as well, you have to understand SASS, SAS, and you have to have it installed, and you have to know how to do it, and you have to kind of like learn how to theme it if you want a decent amount of customizations from those default values. And then yeah, finally, and I- oh, go ahead, oh. sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, so, and one thing I do like to do with uh, materialize is use... Uh, use it for dashboards. I find that material design works really well for any sort of admin styling, admin structuring, uh, and also just really quick, simple demos of like any sort of like any sort of feature you want to show to a client or any sort of feature you just want to develop yourself. It makes it for a really clean UI. I find so, and it materialize kind of makes it really easy to use components like component based like you know i need a button or i need a i need a form it's just really easy to take a material form put it in there and just use it as is instead of having to style it and change a bunch of things uh that's that's why i kind of like material materialize i also am a fan of material design so that's why i've probably used materialize almost just as much as bootstrap um even though obviously bootstrap is a lot more robust and has been around for a lot longer I I mostly work in kind of admin styling so that that's where I'm better. And that's why I think materialize kind of works for me, but each teach their own in that kind of sense. And that kind of, and that kind of is, is really shown in, I would say Google's apps where a lot of Google app, Google's apps are sort of more administrative than anything. Like something like Google drive isn't supposed to wow you with its looks, you know, it's supposed to look good. It's supposed to be in material design, but it's also supposed to be, you know, very admin like. Like, here's your files, here's your pictures, you know, here's your folder structure. It's not supposed to be very serious. It's supposed to be rather serious, not sort of like, hey, look at this picture. It's crazy, you know, whatever. It's not supposed to present it to you. It's just supposed to give you that information. And another thing too is that Material Design or uh, Google's Apps rather has undergone a relatively recent sort of branding change or just sort of a branding refresher. It just looks a little bit cleaner. But both the older and the newer now design were both material design. So that kind of is an attestment to how material design is more of a system rather than a very specific set of like, oh, you know, bars at the top must be blue. You know, there is no limitation on that. It's it's a system. It's a program. It's not necessarily a very particular thing. So you can you should what you really should do if you're thinking about using materialize is you should go onto their website they have a showcase there and kind of see same with bootstrap as well you can kind of see what other people have made and then you can kind of get inspiration and see like oh yeah i want my website to look like this maybe i'll use this theme that they have offering or maybe i'll just make it myself kind of thing or make something similar to it myself and you can kind of see what the limitations and what the uh get some inspiration on what the uh the css frameworks are or can do for you so this kind of leads us to a little bit of a different 
CSS framework, and and I'm going to be doing more work with this in the in the, in the coming weeks as well. And and this is Tailwind CSS. So David has mentioned this a few times to me. I've used it with David before, uh, very briefly, and it, and it's a very interesting CSS framework. So it's it's the official website totes uh, Tailwind CSS as a quote a utility first CSS framework for rapidly building custom user interfaces, and this means that Tailwind does not have any default style, and it is not a UI kit in any way. And the classes that you use to create your UI are considered, quote, low-level utility classes. And these classes are used to create each and every aspect of your UI instead of simply, you know, maybe using a pre-made button or something like that. So, for example, if you want to make a button in Tailwind CSS, you don't just use a button class. You have to put together all the customizations that you would want to use. So, for example, if you want your button to have a blue background, you have to use the class bg-blue. If you want to have the text be white on top of that blue background, you have to use text-white. And the list goes on, of course. There's a bunch for padding, there's a bunch for margin, there's a bunch for alignment, etc, etc, etc. So what you're basically doing with Tailwind is it's kind of closer to that really base example that I gave where someone provides you with a style sheet and you're essentially just taking their work, you know, their properties, how they have them laid out, that you're taking their classes and you're just applying them to your HTML. Now, from this, you might think, well, that's kind of dumb because what if I want all my buttons to be the same style across my entire site? So, you know, that it kind of sounds like it'd be rather inefficient making the same buttons, you know, you'd have to keep copying and pasting these, this like massive string of all these classes. And then in addition to that, if you want to change, you're like, oh, I actually want the text to be red or something like that. Then you have to go back and you know change one of them, copy and paste over all the other ones. So in order to solve that sort of inefficiency, that's already been thought out. And that's thought out with something called a component class. And this allows you to combine all your utility classes, like text white or BG blue, like I said from before, and combine them into a class in the, uh, in the documentation. They have it combined into a class called BTN for button. And you could always, let's say, change that text white to text black or text red or something or the you know change the background color to you know bg red or something like that in these classes and all of the buttons with the btn class the component here the component class will all update and that's how you kind of get around that inefficiency Hmm. that's kind of cool uh so how does it handle stuff like flexbox or grid so as far as I know, and I am just brand new to Tailwind, like I just started reading about it and I want to start doing just the auto project and be documenting that probably on our medium and on our website as well. Um, but so, you know, I might be saying some of this stuff incorrectly because I am a complete beginner to Tailwind, but from what I can tell, uh, something like Flexbox is just as advertised, if you will, from before. So you literally just have, there's a Flexbox class. I think it's just literally Flex. And that, that essentially means display flex. There's also like inline dash flex. And that's like, you know, display inline flex. That's basically how it is. In terms of grids, I don't actually think that they support the CSS grid. Or at least I personally haven't seen anything about CSS grid in particular. Like I said, um, uh, Tailwind CSS is still pre-version 1.0. So there's probably going to be stuff being added. They do support grids um, in general, but they do use the flex box like they do use like the display uh, or the uh, the flex class and that type of thing and then they they have like basically what you would do is you have the like, let's say your uh 
your ma- your master container, your flex container. You would have your one div, your outer div, and it'd be like display flex. And then your inner div, so your flex items, would be, you could put something on it like a width thing. So let's say you have, you wanted two columns and they're 50% of that, of the width of that uh, master container. So your master container is 100 pixels. If you want the two inner divs to be, let's say, 50 pixels each, you could just go w dash one slash one slash two so width one half and you do that to both of your flex items and then it would make two columns within that master flex container so that's kind of how they handle grid they don't as far as i know don't do css grid yeah that's fair enough i mean i guess if it's not supported by everything they're not going to spend their time on it quite yet and as long as you can get all the functionality done within their grid styling then it kind of works out the other thing i like about what what you just said actually uh with the component classes so i'm i'm assuming like the the workflow would be you were you would usually just type in all the you know your classes would become your class tag would become huge because you would type in you know flex and then all the attributes for flex inside the class tag it's it's preventing you from having to go to like the css portion of your code Every time, um, just you can write it all inside your HTML. But then as soon as you kind of, you know, like you said with the example of a button, as soon as you made like one or two buttons, you can be like, well, why am I writing all this stuff all over again? You can just use a component class for that button. And same with anything else that you keep writing. So if you write an icon and you write many, many icons, then you just externalize that into a component. And then all you have to do is put a dot icon in your class. Um, or just an icon in your class tag. So I, I do see the value of this. I've never used Tailwinds. I I kind of <laughs> I kind of want to give it a shot because I am a big proponent of staying in kind of a one file, one location. Um, I've been noticing even with Vue, kind of to tie Vue into this, is Vue kind of makes it easy because you have it all in one file, but it requires me to go from CSS portion of that file down up to the H, like the 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 template portion, which is the HTML portion of that file. And I keep having to go up and down. Sometimes I'll have uh, the screen split into two and open on the same file. And I'll have like the HTML portion at the t- at, in, on one side and the CSS portion on the other side so that I can quickly edit. But this would re- wouldn't require me to do that. I could just do all my CSS stylings in quotes inside of the style tags of the HTML. Um, am I understanding that correctly? Is that how it works or is there something? Could you give me like, could you give me like an example of like what, like a simple thing that you would want to accomplish? So uh, just a simple HTML structure. So like if I want to create a container with Flexbox assigned to it, and then I would want to then justify the, the container, justify a sub container inside of that container to be like, um, I don't know, a self self align it to the left. I wouldn't have to, I would just in on that container as I create it, I would create a class. I would not create a class, but I would just use class flex inside of it. And then on the sub container itself, I would just use another, another class that, that with, with the name of like um, left self align left or something like that. Yeah. And, whatever. And I, whatever the and I, tailwind wouldn't, I would then not have to go into the CSS and actually have to, create those classes i could just use the the predefined tailwinds classes yes that's yes that's correct yeah so it's not like at first i kind of thought you were getting more into maybe more bootstrap territory but yes it's more it's more like each it's more like you're you you're it's probably this is probably the closest i've ever experienced uh to writing your own css but in a css framework if that makes sense 
it's very much like if if you understand CSS already, native CSS, vanilla CSS, you can do like what you just said. You you think to yourself, you go, oh, I need display flex, and you can look that look up the, and it's usually like ra- like rather guessable. You could probably guess what the flex class is because it's literally just flex. But like I mean, like when you're first starting out, if you're like, oh, I need display flex here in the t- in the CSS um in the CSS or the Tailwind CSS, sorry, documentation, you can quickly just like look that up. And then just like find, oh, it's just display flex. It's just this. It's just that. There's there's some there's some things that are, you know, particularly Tailwind CSS, of course, because it is a framework where they, you know, they have certain systems to handle certain things. But as long as you understand the, as long as you understand the CSS, Tailwind CSS is really like very close to it. And and a prime example a prime example of this is when uh, David and I, David's been on the show like I mentioned before, uh, we were working on a uh, on a website. He was using Tailwind, and I, at the time, was on a different project, and I was using Bootstrap, and I was able to very quickly just start using Tailwind that night. Like, it wasn't like I was like, oh, I gotta read, you know, for an hour or something, and then dive in. It was, no, it was just very easy for me to pick up Tailwind right from Bootstrap. So if you're using Bootstrap already, that's another thing you could just easily, like, swap to as well. And on and on that topic, actually, uh, picking it up quickly, I just checked, did a real quick Google search, and there's a Tailwind CSS IntelliSense plugin for Visual Studio Code, where it'll actually autocomplete your class names based oh, on what you're writing. So if you just type in, you know, BG, it'll show you all the different background properties that you could put in. Or if you type in Flex, it'll show you all the different Flex properties you can put in. So you don't even have to look it up um for the most part i'm guessing unless it's some sort of very you know unique property that you might need to look up but i, I think this would be i think this is the the way to go <laughs> I, this might be in my next project to be honest we'll, well see the, th- the thing is is like as long as you generally like in my opinion and i mean our opinion you know is you generally you know if you should deal with or learn the base like the vanilla css vanilla html uh vanilla js whatever but then once you understand that Tailwind CSS is really a an enhancement. It's like adding a tool into your existing knowledge. If you only understand pure CSS or vanilla CSS at your point and you're like, I want to start learning something, you know, Bootstrap and all of them are easy to pick up. I'm not going to tell you that those are wrong to pick up or hard to pick up. But this is almost solidifying, in my opinion, it, it's solidifying your CSS knowledge. It's very close to it. You're still using the thought process of, this is my wrapper container. As a result, it needs display flex. Like you're still using that stuff with the utility classes with the exception. Again, like there's obviously a few things that are tailwind CSS, you know, they, they make it specifically for tailwind CSS. Um, although I haven't actually come up with any of those or I've actually, uh, uh, saw any of those, but I've been, I've uh, been told like there's a couple of different things where it's like, you know, specific to tailwind CSS. I haven't yet to encounter them. So I can't hundred percent confirm those yet. Um, but like, as I said, if you understand CSS, for the most part, you can just run with it. And that's kind of really key. Whereas with Bootstrap, I found myself trying to find like, oh, like, you know, where, you know, how do I make a nav bar in this thing? I always start with a nav bar because it uses so many components, and so many ideas. So when I first started with Bootstrap, it's like, you know, it's relatively easy to pick up. You know, I copied and pasted their example and then I, that's how I kind of learn. I read their example, I copy and paste their code and then I kind of pick it apart. So I learn like this is nav collapse. This is this, this is this. Because right now that I haven't used uh, Bootstrap for a while, I don't remember those classes and I would have to go back into that documentation again and rather in depth as well. I have to go back into that documentation again and learn 
all of those things like oh this is how i collapsed the nav this is like where the breakpoints are and stuff like that that's actually one of the things that's tailwind specific as well um or that i just thought of is that there they have breakpoints like bootstrap for example and they've like selected uh those breakpoints which i believe are customizable as well again complete beginner here so i apologize if anything's a little inaccurate but uh, i mean i'll be learning it as we go but yes if you want to like you said mike if you want to dive into something where it's faster css coding at this point in my learning procedure i would recommend tailwind css because it's still exercising that css knowledge but it's faster than swapping between your style sheet and your html constantly back and forth back and forth back and forth so i definitely would suggest that um so just to reiterate a couple things here uh most frameworks, so those three I just mentioned, as well as there's a bunch of other ones out there, can be customized to suit your needs, but others start out closer to where your project should look and function like in production. And again, reiterating, you could customize Bootstrap to the point where you have material design implemented across your entire UI, but it would probably be easier if you just started out with something like Materialize. Bootstrap is, you know, its style is relatively close to material design, but Materialize is obviously like a specialized product for material design. So, and Bootstrap has, in my opinion, a very particular look. It looks good, but it just has a very particular look. And so that's, again, that that's my two cents. That's my opinion. But that's something that I use when choosing these, uh, or cho- when I'm choosing, researching, and learning these type of uh, frameworks. So hopefully that helps you. And remember, I do have that Medium article. If this is too much for you, you can kind of read through it and kind of go, down the the page at your own pace and then maybe come and revisit this episode uh but i am done my part and uh time to uh time to talk about some really current news in the web news here i'll toss it to mike for that one let's do it uh web news this week google io 2019 microsoft build 2019 uh just gonna do some really high level stuff uh some stuff that affects us like as web developers in general and some just stuff that i'm interested in which is uh mostly google and android stuff um, so I'll start off with uh, Google I/O 2019 and Android. So Android Q, uh, I don't know if anyone's been following around, following it, has been in uh, very early stage betas. Um, a couple of features here and there, but it just came out to like the first full public beta. Uh, and with that, they actually announced that they're putting it onto a lot more phones and manufacturers than all previous betas that has have ever happened. So that includes like OnePlus, which have had beta before. It also includes stuff like Asus, which have never had betas. Um, the even the Pixel One is still getting the Android Q beta, which is you know, uh, it's in in it in its third year now, I think, or fourth year even. So it, it's really spreading. Like the Android update process and the Android uh, updates are really spreading to a lot more devices than they have before. Uh, I think Xiaomi's getting a bunch of betas as well uh, for Android Q. So they're getting betas at the same time as the Pixel devices, which is uh, Google's own hardware. So I think that's a huge advantage. I I am a big proponent of updating your operating system as often as possible. Um, A big thing of that is obviously security. Like the more updates you get, the more secure your device becomes. And the longer they receive these updates for as well, like you'll feel safer using the device for longer periods of time because security exploits happen all the time. And as you're, if you're in some sort of public space or if you're, you know, if you 
access many, many different Wi-Fi networks all the time, it's important to stay as up-to-date as you possibly can. So this is great for us, for us update people. Um, the other thing is that Android Q is obviously adding a bunch of new features. Uh, one big one is the new gesture-based navigation that they're adding. Now, they had kind of like a pseudo-gesture-based navigation before with a little pill at the bottom, but it was essentially just a home button that you could slide a little bit. Now they're doing a very similar to iOS style uh, gesture-based navigation where there's a line, a very thin line at the bottom, and you can kind of uh, slide along the line to switch apps, uh, swipe up the, on the line to uh, to go home and swipe up and hold to see your recents. They're also for back navigation. I don't know if people, I'm sure there's a lot of people using Android, you have the back button. For that, you'll be swiping from each side of the screen. So either side of the screen will take you back um, now this is kind of a weird implementation because I've used a similar thing on different devices before where you swipe from the left or the right and you go back. But what I've seen from Google's implementation is you can swipe from even like the top left to go back and the top right, which is usually where you would be swiping to open up a drawer. Uh, apps like, I don't know, Reddit sync have a drawer, even like the photos app has a drawer. So like that options drawer that you usually see the menu, the hamburger menu drawer, I would usually slide that open. And I'm, th I think now that's not possible with these new navigation gestures. So I'm curious, uh, to see what Matt's uh, opinions on that are. I don't know if he uses the drawers at all, but, um, next, next, what Google did was the first build of, flutter for web so this one directly influences us as web developers uh if any if no one's heard of flutter before that we have done a few episodes uh talking here and there about flutter we haven't done anything too in depth but i i am definitely planning an in-depth flutter episode it's essentially a cross-platform coding language uh and inf framework it's not based on javascript so that's the big differentiator differentiator here so it's its own it's google's own language called dart and what this, what Flutter allows you to do is it allows you to cross compile to both iOS and Android. And actually there's services now where you don't even need an iOS device or a macOS device to be able to compile for macOS. So they've released a free service that uses, I don't, I don't, I guess it uses macOS servers in the cloud uh, where you can actually compile using Flutter, uh, only Flutter. And that, that's why it hasn't really helped me with my workflow, but it's definitely something I'm looking at for the future. So with the new announcement, Flutter for Web, that means that not only will you be able to build apps for Android and iOS, you are now able to build apps for the web and Chrome OS. So one code base, again, it's not JavaScript code. It is completely separate, separate language called Dart, but it's still one code base for all the different platforms out there. Um, desktop, I believe, is also coming. So you'll be able to build desktop apps for Mac OS and uh, Windows. I, that might actually already be in place. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I, I know it's definitely in the roadmap. Uh, so it, they're really pushing for it. And a big advantage of Flutter um, or Dart, I guess, would be that it, it's a lot more to the metal coding than it, than you would do with like something like Vue Native or React Native, something like uh, something that would force you to code in a different language, at least do your interfaces in a different language, but still keep your JavaScript knowledge uh 
but essentially Flutter actually uses a compiler that goes a lot more closer, a lot closer to the metal of the device. And therefore the performance is a lot better. It uses a rendering engine, very similar to what games would use, like an unreal engine kind of would use, and therefore provides very, really, really good animations. So this, the, the fluidity of your devices are really felt when you're building a Flutter app. It's very, very close to a native experience. Um, and it also allows you to have full access to native APIs, like, camera and like push notifications all that stuff which uh as as we've talked about before with ios especially is kind of a problem with doing any sort of uh, cross-platform application building um so yeah th- those are the big features i'll have some links in the sources uh that will talk about a lot of these features in Go- especially google io uh but i'll move on to microsoft build so the top main points of microsoft build and i'm sure a lot of you have already heard about this uh is that microsoft is getting a full Linux kernel in Windows 10. Uh, and the implications of that are a little bit not not fully known. Um, well, they're pretty much known, but they're not fully understood yet, I think. I think there's a lot more to be discovered with this, but we're also getting a new Windows terminal. Uh, and that means that we'll have, you know, full bash access, full terminal access into the Linux kernel that's going to be inside of Windows. And it's actually a really cool Windows terminal. Uh I, I saw a video of them demonstrating it and actually, you know what, I, I, what I want to do while I'm talking about the next point is send Matt the link to this video. I want you to take a look how, how epic they made this, this video of a terminal B. It's kind of a, kind of surprising. So take a look at that while I'm talking about the last point here, um, which is the Windows subsystem for Linux has also been updated. So before they were on WSL one, Windows subsystem level one or Windows subsystem for Linux one, they've updated to level to number two now. And it's uh, apparently a lot faster, a lot more access to hardware level stuff. Um, I believe and anyone can jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. I believe this gives you full access to the Windows uh, file system inside of uh, inside of the terminal. So you'll be able to do any sort of, you know, pseudo admin commands to your Windows file system, which is super cool. Uh, you'll be able to do stuff like using Docker, the Linux version of Docker inside of Windows without having to, you know, have a, a separate Docker container in Windows running this kind of stuff. Uh, I think it'll it'll really increase productivity for any Windows developers out there. I don't know if there's a lot of them out there, but uh, I for sure am one. I know Matt is one, and I I'm sure there's other ones out there using Windows. And I'm I think this will this will kind of push Windows a little bit further into that professional space. I, I know I've been talking a lot about the Mac and the Apple problems and I, I have that article up talking about it. I have gotten some feedback saying like, listen, it's not only web developers that are suffering, it's any professional across the board that's suffering with Mac OS right now and Mac and Mac devices. So I think Windows is doing the right thing here. I think they're moving and they're going, they're directly appealing to professional developers. They're pre- appealing to professional workflows uh, with this kind of stuff, and I'm really excited to kind of get my hands on it and test it out. Uh, with that, I will pass it off to Matt if to see if he has any comments on anything that we just talked about. Well, it's super interesting. I just watched this video, and um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty like uh, it's pretty PR'd out for like such a like a, an advanced user feature. Like, I'm sure people don't even know what the command prompt is. Like a lot of people who have used Windows for years, but I mean, I use the command prompt all the time, CMD, and this looks pretty exciting. The thing, the thing that I'm questioning is not the UI, not the, not the, well, maybe the, maybe the capability, I think, is maybe like, and maybe it's because the innovators haven't gotten their hands on it yet. And we were talking about this before. How, 
what is the purpose of having the Linux shell or the like Linux at all intertwined with with Windows? And the reason why I ask that is obviously if there's a Linux only version of a program, which some administrative programs are Linux only, although they are rare. The, you know, those make sense, you know, they'll be in there, but you were saying something like, well, what's the point of having the windows version of Docker then if you have the Linux one? And my question is, is now I have very little Docker experience, but I do have a decent amount of, or a good amount of experience, I should say with Linux, just in general, what is the benefit of having that Linux version of Docker over the windows one? And I'll kind of suffix that with whenever I use Linux, I only use the, not the CMD, I was about to say CMD, but the terminal, you know, the command prompt, essentially. I only use commands. I generally do not have installed or do not fire up a UI on Linux. I only really use commands. I don't really care about the Linux UI. I couldn't even really, I mean, I'm sure I could figure out how to navigate it, but I don't know where all the things are because I don't use it. And so I guess what my question is, is if you're on Windows... You know, I've never fired up Windows and been like, I'm only using CMD. And so what do you think is the implication or the benefit of having Linux here? Because I'm sure there is one, obviously. I just don't see it personally and not for my use case. Okay, so uh, I can I can tell you right now that you say you only use the, CM, the, the terminal in Linux, right? Well, now you can do anything that you've done on the terminal in Linux on Windows. So even though like you can you can do all your you know file system stuff, you can do any sort of Plex server stuff uh inside of a Windows base. So you can any sort of window Linux application that you would use, like Docker, Docker is just an example of one. Uh Docker is I think adapted for Windows, but it's still running a Linux kernel, like a Linux installation, kind of a VM thing in the background so it'll be much more efficient now running on a linux kernel that's already natively in windows there's no doubt about that it'll be faster than it was before that's a that's a hundred percent and it'll be a lot more a lot easier to interface with and also to kind of like use the same commands as you would on your production server as you do on your dev server if you're in a windows environment that's i think a big advantage of this is that a lot of you know, production servers are running a version of Linux and usually just have a CLI. Uh, and if you're using Windows, a big disadvantage was that you had to kind of adapt a lot of the production tools if you are if you want to emulate the production environment to a Windows-style build. Uh, and usually the commands that you run on Windows are different than what you would run on a Linux build. And so your the carryover, one-to-one carryover of running production and, and dev environments was kind of hard to do on Windows uh, if you didn't just have a, a you know a, a Linux based operating system, so I like it. It would be a little bit of a disconnect, is what I'm trying to say. Now there is no disconnect. So now, if you like Windows, and we do like Windows, and you know we game on Windows, we run a lot of applications on Windows, stuff like that, uh, we can stay in this in the Windows operating system and have a one to one correlation to our production environments be able to use any sort of Linux-based development applications inside of Windows, inside of the Windows terminal. And again, you would stay in that terminal because, like you said, most people are more comfortable in the window in the Linux terminal than they are in the Linux GUI. So you would stay in that terminal. You wouldn't have to leave it to do a lot of the same stuff that you would be doing in a Linux VM. 
Is that does that kind of answer your question? That, that does, yeah. Like I, I can definitely see because a lot of people will be using the Linux versions of stuff in production. And so if they are programming on Windows, which I would say Windows, and this is just personal opinion from personal experience, but I would say that Windows and or Mac is more popular to, pro- to program on than Linux um, myself. Like I, I've only personally seen one or two people actually have Linux on their main machine. So I don't know. I don't know whether like I'm off base there. Like I'm just saying, well, I'm literally saying I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, it's not that you're off base. It's just like when, when you say Mac, it kind of technically has Linux on it. Yes, but I, I like, find there's that a lot, a lot of, people... of the people there don't use the terminal. Even uh... even the devs in my again in my experience, which is a small sample size. Yeah, I've I've seen most like a lot of devs use the terminal in Mac, and I've seen a lot of devs choose Mac because it has the Linux kernel. So I think that's that's the big variation here is that now Windows has Linux kernel. So people that are choosing Mac for the Linux kernel are going to be like, well, now I have a different option. And since Mac is literally going against professionals, let's go with Windows, who is going developing strictly for professionals. That's it's definitely interesting because, like, I mean, for example, like we've I've like spun things up for I mean, strangely enough, I've spun things up for Linux uh, like I was going to, I was assuming it was going to be like a standard, you know, whatever Linux distribution with cPanel installed on this particular host. And what it ended up being was IIS. So on windows, I programmed a, a site for an environment in which I assumed it was just going to be Linux. And then it ended up being IIS, but like that type of situation, minus the fact that it's IIS in production kind of makes sense. If I was just programming on windows and I'm going to be pushing it out to like I said, a normal Linux distro with like like Linux server with, you know, generally a host will give you cPanel, let's say. If you're doing a a web app, if you will, or, you know, there's a whole bunch of different implications here. I could definitely see, especially if it's a high level thing, like something more than HTML, CSS, that type of thing. So something that's more advanced than my daily thing where I mostly do, I mostly do UIs. If it's more advanced and literally like the it's it's an app in which it's checking things in the system or grabbing things from the system i can definitely see the need for a linux kernel linux commands you know the whole bit getting as close to that production environment as you could while still programming in windows so i i can definitely see that for sure and that what what's interesting to me and this brings up like a an off topic but related topic thing to me is that with things like this it's very strange to me that they don't, or at least I don't see it often. It's not like, you know how like a consumer product is like very much a consumer product, if you will. And what I mean by that is, is it's very much like, this is a vacuum cleaner. It cleans up dirt. Like it's very obvious, even in the commercial. Like if you never heard of a vacuum cleaner before, it's rather obvious that a va- that, that person is using a vacuum cleaner to clean up dirt. I find with professional tools like this or professional changes like things that are changing in the professional environment of windows if you will i find that with these changes they never or rarely explain what the implications are and it's sort of up to the pros which i mean i'm sure a lot of pros do get it but i will find myself sometimes thinking to myself like as a professional i'll be like oh man that that's really cool i can i don't know spin up uis faster but then you'll hear like another pro in the space say, like, have a different, not even think about that, not even think about spinning up UIs faster. And he has a completely different use case for it in which I could use that. And I'm, 
relatively certain that the creator had that idea as well, but yet they don't consumerize it. And consumerizing it is so simple. And I, I understand because consumers aren't going to use it. Like if you go in, like we're explaining Windows Terminal, you know, I, I mean, admittedly it isn't out yet as far as I know. And so when Windows Terminal is sort of a, something that could be easily explained in layman terms, but still not attract consumers. Like consumers wouldn't be like, oh, now I'm going to start programming in Linux. You know what I mean? But what it would do is kind of clear the air and kind of give you a, as a professional, a clear indication as to what its implication is, what it's for, why it's there. I remember uh, when we were brand new to web programming, one of the Google IOs, you and I, I think you and I were watching it together. They were talking about Firebase. You knew exactly what it was. I had no idea what the hell it was. I'd never heard of it. We were brand new. We were like three, two, three months in, something like that. And they were talking about Firebase on that stage. I didn't know what it was. And they didn't explain it. And people were cheering and freaking out and like talking about like, oh, it's deliverable and this and the other thing. There's all these buzzwords, deliverables and, you know, faster than ever and all this other crap. But it, they never consumerize it where you could in like two sentences. And I don't understand why things aren't consumerized, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't I don't know. It's um, it's one of those things where uh, maybe they're just too close to it. So they're so close to it that they, they, they don't themselves see the need to do something like that. Uh, but that's why like a lot of a lot of times when you wait a little bit, uh, someone will definitely consumerize it for you. Like I'm sure that there's articles out there right now that consumerize the Linux kernel stuff. Sure. Where people where it'll explain like a bunch of different uh, you know uses for it and stuff like that. Like I, we might have to search for it. But yeah, Microsoft or Google or anyone like that usually – don't give you very high level uses they give you very intricate little things that were very hard to do before or now are easier to do which might not help a someone that's coming into it from like from scratch so i could see where you're coming from for sure because i've had that issue quite a few times um especially with this terminal stuff because I'm not, I'm not a huge linux user in general right uh, so so i have to go in and find that docker example to really kind of click it click it all together for me um but i i do i do see i do think that what we're we're thinking very high level and there's a lot more like a lot lot more lower level stuff that we're not fully comprehending that could be could have easily been explained to us like you said in a few sentences which they don't seem to like to do uh, which is weird uh, but but uh, like barring barring that topic what are your thoughts on a android q features right what what do you think of the gestures and oh the, the other thing i didn't tell you about was live caption uh live caption is definitely an accessibility feature but it's also kind of interesting it's a live sub uh sub captions feature okay on any video that's playing on your phone and it's system-wide so you turn it on and you can turn it on from the volume settings from the volume like so you go up or down on volume yeah and there's a little icon there you turn it on and it will start live sub captioning for you on anything that you're watching if it's good that's Cur pretty good like if it's accurate yeah. it's pretty good yeah it seemed i mean I, I, all the demonstrations were demonstrations so no no idea how good it's going to be 
Um, but uh, if it is good, I fully agree with you. I think that's awesome because it, it's not only an accessibility thing in my eyes. It's something where like where volume is a concern for you. So like if you are in a maybe a meeting is not a good good word, but maybe you're at like you're in a you're in a public wait. place like you're waiting. Somewhere. Yeah, you're any public place and you don't want to blare your speakers and you don't have your headphones. Uh, you don't want to go reach for your headphones. You can quickly see the gist of the video with the subcaptions. I mean, I, I, I like that kind of, those kinds of little features. Um, but the other thing is system wide dark mode. I think you already have it. So that's not really anything for you, right? Like I, does the Samsung device already have system wide dark mode? Oh yeah. I have it on for sure. Yeah. yeah it looks great. Yeah. So th- this, this will affect Google apps as well though. So drive and photos and stuff will have dark mode and it'll be enabled through the system. So you can, you know, do it based on time of day or uh or actually do it with uh just a click of a tap of a icon in the notifications panel yeah which is kind of cool and then the other thing is the gesture-based navigations it's kind of a weird way of doing it but it could be good i don't know do you use that side drawer that you're talking about like you're talking about like the navicon like the the you know like on on the left hand side of a lot of android applications you can pull out a drawer yeah I, I never do, do you, it with the gesture. I click the button. You click the button. Okay, click the so button, this yeah. won't affect you at all then because I, I do it a lot with the gesture. Um, the way I found a, a good hybrid for this kind of thing is that the bottom half of the screen, if you swipe from the left or right, goes back. And then the top half of the screen, if you swipe from the left, it will open up the like the the hamburger menu. Um but I don't know. It, it, it's it's a it's a weird implementation in my eyes. I, I don't like it how it goes all the way to the top. I do like the swiping to go back, but I don't like the the fact that it you I can't pull up that sidebar. It's a weird little thing. Well, the thing is too is I, I uh, one thing I am gonna say about gesture navigations. I used to use gestures a lot on BB10, and then when I went to um, almost said when I went to Linux, when I went to uh, Android. So with a an LG G four Linux technically Linux but like LG G four, um, it was very, uh, not tactile based. Uh, like, but you'd click buttons like virtual buttons. I don't really know what you'd call that, but it was very like implicit. Like it was very obvious that I was clicking this button, clicking this button. There was, I'm sure that I could turn on gesture controls or something maybe, but I never really you know messed around with that. I didn't really mess around with many launchers. I just kind of like I didn't care. And I just kind of use like the buttons. And then more recently with one UI, for example, um, well, I have two, I have two devices. So I have a key two here and a key two has physical buttons still for back home and for the multitasking window. Now they're not like actual buttons. They're capacitive buttons on the bottom of the screen, but they are still like physical there. Like they can't be changed at this point. Uh, maybe their functionality could be, I don't really know, but uh, in terms of there being three buttons at the bottom in classic Android style, they're there. They're there and like they're in the device. So something like the where Samsung, where I didn't have that, Samsung devices had like you could hide the navigation bar. So again, the classic nav bar, back, home, and multitask. The recent, I don't know, I don't know what they, I don't know what Android calls it, but anyway. So I used to always have my dock, like my little nav bar, always locked in. Like it was always visible. And then when you when One UI came around, I put on dark mode, but that's that bottom bar in a lot of apps was still white and it looked like it looked like crap, and I really didn't like it. So I tried to hide it, but then I was always I kept like trying to tap for home or tap back because it's just a just out of habit, and that was annoying. So what I ended up doing was I turned off 
that the bottom bar is basically invisible. And there used to be little helper lines, and I got rid of those too. So bot, like the screen is like the full screen now. Like all my content is taking up the whole screen now. But if I swipe up in the middle, that's home. Swipe up on the right, that's like re- recent or multitasking. And if I swipe up on the, the left-hand side, that's back. And what I like about this is that, first of all, it's gestures. So the je- I, I, you know, it's kind of a hearkening back to the Windows 10 or the uh, the BlackBerry 10 days. But it's like, I'm still getting my, I got my gesture fix, essentially. I now have more screen real estate. And in this current state, I'm not messing around with like the different apps where I hate when a system, it's like what you're saying, I hate when a system updates such that it breaks an app until the developer changes the app. I understand that that's a necessary thing. I'm not saying it should never happen. But it's a it's a pet peeve of mine to see like apps like slowly roll out to this new thing. And I kind of really like Samsung's implementation. Now, whether they're going to go more, you know, more toward Google's way eventually, I'm not sure. But I really like Samsung's implementation where it keeps it fresh, where there's now just there's now gestures, but the gestures are very implicit. You know, swiping up in the middle is very obvious that I'm doing home. Swiping up from the the, the, the right is very obvious and doing multitasking and the same with the back key. It's very so or like swiping up on the on the home screen is a gesture. I think it opens up my app drawer. Swiping down pulls down my notification shade. So it's keeping it fresh, but it's keeping it classic. So I don't know whether it's more transitionary or whether cuz I don't really see a benefit to them having system wide, you know, swipe left to right for back. Like I to me I don't see a benefit of having that as a back gesture when you could do it Samsung's way. Where you're still clearing up that navigation space, you're still introducing a new way to interact with it. You're still introducing a gesture, which I guess would be the new way to interact with it. And it, it's still it still keeps the apps intact, where the apps can now have control of the screen still. Like like my content, basically, is still has control of my screen. All my content still, like, the app developers can do their own gestures. They can go crazy with it if they want. Whereas, if the system starts taking over all these gestures, you know, in my opinion, the system should stay at the bottom of the screen, if you will. In cl- sort of classic Android style. I don't know what your thoughts on that. But yeah, uh, it's a good, it's a, I mean, it's a good observation. I've used both sides of gestures. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I think it's a full personal preference thing. I think it, it's also important to point out that this is a beta, so they might change the way they work in the future. I, but I am in agreement with you that I like it when a system doesn't interfere with the current applications. And that might be a backwards way of looking at it sometimes in, in some cases, uh, but in the, for the most part, if I'm putting a blanket statement out there, I fully agree that it shouldn't do that. And this seems to directly influence how I use applications, which isn't what I want. Um, I will try it out in the next probably few weeks or so, because uh, fortunately, my phone was part of the beta. Um, I'll, I'll make sure to see what what's updated and if it works as daily driver material, and I might give it a give it a shot. Uh, we'll see. Uh, and maybe I'll report back on here as well. So stay tuned for that. Um, the other thing, just, just quickly, uh, what are your thoughts on the flutter for web? I, I don't know if we have talked about flutter before you and I, I don't know if you have any insight on having like another kind of cross platform coding framework to use. I don't know. I don't know if this stems from a negative place. I, I feel like it does. Maybe it just has a negative connotation. And that is that I'm not negative about flutter in particular, you know, the, the, the settings sound really cool. I like the fact that there's the native APIs. I like the fact that there's uh, very smooth and uh, very 
almost I'll call them refreshing animations where they're not like jittery and you know lack of FPS and that type of thing. I like that. What I don't have faith in is I don't have faith in anything like this being a long-term solution. I always find cross-platform things and we use Cordova and uh, you know, that's been around for a long time and it's still going as far as we know. So, you know, to me, the, the, the thing that, the thing that bothers me, I think, and, and again, this might be just due to be being negative maybe is that I'm always worried that somebody can so easily flip the table on that and just be like, all right, we're done with this. And then you've put in a whole bunch of hours and whatnot into learning a very particular, in this case, very, I shouldn't say very niche, but very, I guess very particular is the best way to put it. It's pretty niche. It's pretty niche. That's that's a good way to put it. So yeah, so like a niche way of programming an app. And and that's sort of, I think, where where and why we always push for the pure or the vanilla, you know, combo of HTML, CSS, and JS. Whereas those languages can always change, like certainly, like they could change in the future. But the the timing or like the, the amount of time it takes for those type of languages to change is generally those languages being updated. So you're not, you're just, you're just adding on to your knowledge and they're not being completely swapped out. Whereas something like flutter is something that I would be interested in, but I'm always scared of int- implementing or uh, investing time into it because of the, because of the possibility that it could be taken away very quickly and suddenly. And though, and especially since if it's a niche item, like we're saying, you know, niches get pulled all the time. Something like Cordova is sort of like the middle ground where that app that I made is, it works in the browser with or without the Cordova instance running generally. So yes, there's some things that are Cordova specific, but for the most part, a lot of the functionality will just work in the browser normally. So I could easily just convert it into a web app and move on. Whereas if Flutter gets pulled, now we have a whole situation where, you know, your whole language gets pulled out from under you. And like, do you redo that application? I don't know. I I think I plan too much and I act too little maybe also. I don't don't think so. I I think that your concern is extremely valid. Like it's a hundred percent a concern with Flutter because it's a Google product. That's another thing. We all know, we all know what that means. The, the, the counter, it's, I don't know, even know if it's a counterpoint because I'm in this kind of in the same boat as you with my hesitation for it. Uh, but w- one thing that has made me more optimistic in this case is that it's already been around for, I think this is the third year. Um, now you, and, and it hasn't stopped gaining speed. So a lot of times with Google products, it's usually the, the ones that get canceled are ones that stop gaining speed. Like they're still popular, but they're not as, um, like they're not they're not like they're not going on a, on a rocket on a rocket trajectory. So stuff like uh, Allo that had a big curve of like oh this is interesting and then it kind of plummeted down to no one using it because it's another messaging app. Uh, stuff like Google Plus same thing like oh this is a new social media network but it sucks so we're not going to use it. This is it, all that like you know the going up and then down going up and then down. All those applications as soon as it starts going down even if a lot of people like it people are using it and still has a high user count. As soon as it starts going down uh, and the trajectory goes down, that's when Google will cancel it. And usually that happens within like months of the app of, of the thing being up. So it, because it's Google, it will gain a lot of popularity and then like people will realize that it's not great or they don't like something about it and they'll start not using it. And people will start 
less people will start downloading it and then Google will kibosh it because they have no problem kiboshing projects. But one thing that has made me a little bit more optimistic on Flutter is the fact that it hasn't had that situation happen. It's only becoming more popular and it's been around for a few years now. More and more stuff is being added to it. It's not like in a stagnant form. Like I said, Flutter for web is a brand new thing that just came out now in its first form. Um, I wouldn't bank like I would not bank on it as a production a- application, uh, but I think it's definitely worthwhile to look into and to just dabble in a little bit. Um, I have a, I have a inkling that it's something that will stick. I think it will be it will be something that is used in their future applications. Like you know, the the rumor is that the, is that they're combining Chrome OS and Android into one operating system. I think this is going to be their native programming language for that operating system. I think this is all building to that, if that makes sense. This is it's just an inkling. It, it's literally just my my gut feeling about it. Uh, so no, no one take that and run with it. Uh, but I I do have a strong inkling. Like I I have a couple strong inklings about the web development industry. Flutter will be a big por- a big part of it or like a, a chunk of it at some point. Uh, which will be a big change in how web development works because it's not a JS-based operating, like a JS-based programming language or CSS or HTML. And another thing is that I think Vue.js will be a very big framework coming in the future. It's already a huge framework, but I think I think it will be something that's even bigger than React. Um, th- those are just, again, those are just stuff like how I feel. It's interesting because uh, because I think that people have discussed you know Android being replaced because it is running on Java, and you know how many other things run on Java these days. At the end of the day, uh, you know obviously a bunch, you know millions if not more. But at the same time, it's not you know people don't normally go. I'm gonna you know I'm gonna start a new app. I'm gonna run it. I'm gonna run it on Java. You know, no one really, yeah. in my opinion, does that much anymore. And so it's kind of running its course where these other you know, kind of big boys are starting to spin up as well. It's interesting. For some reason, I think, and this is possibly off topic slightly, but I kind of think that if they take Android and they get rid of, if they take Android and they, they kind of, I don't know, kibosh Android, let's say, and they make some, they make Andromeda, whatever. I think that was like the rumored name. They make some Mm -hmm. sort of like that Chrome OS Android hybrid and it runs on everything. I have a feeling that they're going to cut out the OEMs as strange as that sounds, because I feel like they, I feel like they may have, or they may think that they have loyalty from the consumers now for Android. And now whether that's misguided, because I know that a lot of people think that Android is made by Samsung because they just buy Samsung devices. But in terms of, you know, marketing, I wouldn't necessarily throw it out the door for them to say, well, the pixel isn't doing the greatest, you know, it's doing fine. It's not doing the greatest. And we could make it do great things if we just remove the operating system from these OEMs. And I could see Samsung making Tizen or Tizen work at work out for them. I could see that. I would probably go Tizen myself, um, personally. But I just, I don't know. It's, I feel like when they make a change, like I feel like your thing with the, with the Flutter, I think that makes a lot of sense. If anything, it's going to maybe be the groundwork for the new language and it's going to be very similar if they do merge the two operating systems. But I see a lot, a lot of Android's potential is squandered, is squandered and discovered strangely on the, on the, the fact that there's different OEMs at the helm. 
you know, um, my, I get updates late on my devices because I don't have a pixel. For example, uh, iPhones get maybe, I don't know, four or five years of support. Android devices on average will get two years of support in terms of the latest updates, uh, the latest mm, OS. And that's, that's not on average. That's low average. I think the, the average is no support. Yeah, which is no okay. So I mean, it's even worse. And so I think that in terms of in terms of of Android, one of the things I I was thinking of is maybe they would make it more like Windows 10, where they make one version of Android and then they just po- push out the updates every year, and it's just like you know we just call it Android, and we just do a big update every year, and it's it just goes out to all the devices. But I think that because I think the Windows 10 model is very intelligent, I think that it's too difficult to do that with several OEMs at the helm. And I think that Google may want that chunk of the market and it would be interesting. And this is all speculation to be totally clear. This is just total speculation. But if you think about it, look at the amount of power Apple can get out of just two gigs of Ram. You know, they didn't update their Ram for years and they get, they got tons of power out of that thing. And uh, Android could do the same thing. You know, the or the new operating system, Andromeda could do the same thing. They would control the whole thing. Because Google is also kind of becoming a brand of themselves, like they always were, but in terms of the from for the consumer market, for the people that are totally unplugged from tech and just use it because it's a part of their lives, Google coming into the home is is like a, a good branding choice. So then they would say like, Oh, from the makers of Google home, you know, come this new operating system. Like, like that's, that's how I can kind of can see them swinging it. And, you know, from the makers of the pixel and Google home and this and that. So they'll try to like, and from Gmail, you know, things that people use every day where they're, where it's the segment of the market that isn't techie. I can kind of see, I can kind of see them trying to pull people over. Like, you know what I mean? Trying to pull people and be like, no, 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 just buy pixels. Because I think Android would be much further if it was just the Pixel in terms of its innovation. Although, again, there's innovations that I really like on my Samsung device that Google did not, possibly will never, and has has have not implemented. One UI looks really nice in my opinion. I like the I like the gestures, like I said, and those don't exist on Android. So like though obviously like Google's going a different way. And so the different OEMs add different flavor and you kind of get a different choice. How much does that choice matter to the consumer? You know, if somebody some, comes to you and says, if Google tomorrow said, we're, we're switching back to the old, we're getting rid of gestures. Like, we don't want the gestures anymore. Or next year, let's say. We're getting rid of the gestures. We want to go back to the old back button home and then the multitasking. I don't think that they would really lose a market share because of that, personally. I, I can't see them losing market share due to that. I can't personally see them losing market share to a, like a less gesture-based thing. I think people just want to be able to run their Twitter, their Facebook, their Snapchat, whatever it is they use, talk, text, all that stuff. And that's it, really. I don't think that the the controls of the OS really matter that much. Again, all speculation, but that's maybe my that that's my two cents. So to go back to the base point, Flutter could absolutely become that 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 language. That's a very interesting that's a very interesting opinion. But I also think that in order for these things to become more stable, like a prime example is Allo. Like if if Google takes over all the Google devices, like they 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 put Android only on Pixels and they don't let anyone else do it, Allo would still be around. Like Google does not have a, a messaging solution that's really good. You know, RCS isn't really that great. 
But if they, like, the Chrome took off, and I mean, they're getting sued for related things now or something where, uh, like, Chrome is being pre-installed in devices. Now there's, like, a whole thing. I don't really know the whole story, but it's, like, Chrome is, or like, uh, certain countries are saying, like, you have to allow people to, like, see, like, hey, you could you could install Edge and Firefox and all these other guys. Like, it's unfair competition. But if it's a Google device only, you know, Safari is always installed on Apple, on, on, on iOS devices. And so I could see Google taking things much further if they just controlled everything and didn't have to deal with the OEMs. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you, yeah. I don't know what your thought uh, is on that. Yeah, um, I'll I'll leave it with this. Uh, my fi- my ending thoughts for the night, um, in response to that is I think initially when they created the Pixel devices, that was them testing the grounds to see if they could do something like that. And I think they've realized that they can't because Pixel devices are not doing well. Their main money comes from the App Store. So the more devices that have the App Store, the better it is for them. They, of course, would want to control both the software and the hardware of the device and not let OEMs control it if they could have got the market share, which they didn't. Uh, and they're not, it's not like it's it's getting better from Pixel to Pixel. It's actually getting worse. So Pixel 2 had better buy rates than Pixel 3 etc like it's it's not it's not doing very well the pixel program so what i think is going to happen is i think they are going to try to do something where they're going to be more they're going to make it so that the manufacturers are more locked down in a sense that they don't have as much freedom to do what they want but they're still going to allow everyone to use android and to have the app store on their phones it's just with this new operating system, sorry, not Android, but Andromeda, let's say we're just temporarily calling it Andromeda. They're still going to allow everyone to use Andromeda, but it's going to be a much more closed and much more to the metal operating system and therefore will allow for less customization by the OEMs, uh, which is a negative for you, Matt, because you like the way Samsung customizes it, right? So Samsung will have less control of it that it might prompt them to go and create their own tizen version of tizen or whatever uh, or create their own version of an operating system again which it failed horribly last time they tried it uh, it wasn't even close so it's pr- it would probably fail again is my guess unless they pump like a, a ludicrous amount of money into it and and uh, sell devices for very cheap to get you know widespread usage and then you know pay developers to create applications like you, you like what bb10 was trying to do but on a Samsung scale, like, you know, millions and millions and maybe even billions of dollars into adoption, just purely adoption. Because like we've talked about before, BB10 was a great operating system, just did not have the adoption, therefore did not have the app support, and therefore just like it couldn't get off the ground. And anything against Google and iOS right now will have to be a ludicrous amount of money to get it adopted. So I don't I don't know if they're going to do that. I don't think it's worth it for them to do that. I think they would just adopt to whatever Google requires them to do and just use that because that's a huge amount of money saved um but i think i honestly don't think that google will lock themselves in to a single platform that's i'll, I'll leave it at that that that's where i th- i think that's where it's going i'm not 100 sure obviously i think that's a really interesting interesting sentiment because it they do have the app store and that and that's a really good point as i don't really think of that where like, where's the money in android well i'm not necessarily paying I mean, I don't know if it's through the device or whatever, but I'm not like, I never pay for an ISO of Android, for example, like I would for Windows 10, you know, I have to buy the Windows 10 key. I'm never paying for my window or my Android key or my ISO or whatever it would be. So that's interesting. 
that that's interesting. And I, I think that I don't know whether we're working toward whether there whether there will ever be, I guess, a space for another OS. And I think only time will tell, but that's still very interesting. I think there's Ubuntu Touch still. That ain't going anywhere. And I ain't using that. Um that's very interesting, but I think I think that's a that's a question kind of to to toss up. If you guys, you know, you guys, the listeners, want to like chime in on this, you could chime in on our new Discord and toss that one in there. Chime in on our new Discord, but you can also you know message us on the the socials or tweet at us or whatever you do on those social channels and or Facebook. Uh, and that's interesting. Like, like, what do you guys think? Do you think there's ever going to be any ever going to be room for another OS? Like, even Windows Phone got kicked out of there, kicked out of the market. So. You know, if with Microsoft money, if they couldn't, you know, cut, you know, get the get the deal done, if you will, they couldn't uh, keep it sustainable. You know, what what would ever open up? Like, what would ever happen? What could ever happen to allow another, you know, OS to come flying in? I don't know. Maybe just money. Maybe it just has to be money. Like you were saying, millions and billions of dollars from Samsung, just tossed into it, just to get, uh, you know, cost- tons of customers, tons of app developers. Maybe. Who knows? But that's an interesting question. I think I think we will leave it with that because this is that's a we kind of have both uh, sides of the argument there. But um, I'll also leave it with another self plug. Join our Discord, which is going to be in the show notes, and um, I'm going to run the old conclusion here. So uh, thank you for listening, and uh, make sure you do not miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can find us on the socials via at HTML all the things, which is Facebook and Instagram, or also at HTML everything, which is on Twitter. We're on Medium, we are on GitHub, and we're also on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. And many thank yous, many thank, many thank yous, whatever. Many thanks to our $3 tier patron, Sean, from RabbitWorks JavaScript. That's RabbitWorks, Rabbit, uh, W-E-R-K-S. He runs he runs a, uh, a channel on YouTube which uh, covers a bunch of uh, Vue.js tutorials and other JavaScript things and that type of thing. So definitely check him out. You can find him at youtube.com slash rabbitworksjavascript. Again, works is spelled W-E-R-K-S. Uh, so go and check that out. His link will obviously be in the description as well. And again, thank you for listening. And we are signing off. Thank you.